Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. I am Michael Bauman. I'm a staff writer at TheRinger.com. We've got a jam-packed show for you. Uh, we're going to talk A-Rod, we're going to talk Prince Fielder, we're going to talk other odds and ends with a couple of guests, the first of which is a writer for SB Nation uh, and the Cubby Chronicles and the uh, unofficial dean of baseball Twitter. It's Grant Brisby. How you doing? I'm doing very well, very well. I thought it was official. I thought they thought they codified that and got I, me in. I, I heard the, the vice provost of, of baseball Twitter is still getting the paperwork through. So I guess you're, you're the presumptive dean of baseball Twitter right now. Um, all right, all right. I'll take it. I'll take it. So... Uh, this has been the the week of uh, of unexpected retirements, uh, which you've covered in in depth on SB Nation. Um, so we're going to go through a couple of them and just sort of talk about those different players' legacies and you know what that means for the modern game. And uh, where I wanted to start was Prince Fielder because you wrote about his swing, and I sort of took a similar approach uh, when I was writing about him at the Ringer on Wednesday. So like. What made that that swing just so? I mean, it was just one of the most recognizable baseball actions of, of any kind for I don't know close to ten years. Like, what made it so interesting to you? You know, it, when you look at a Prince Fielder and you're you're looking at his body of work, um, no no pun intended. Yeah, so to you're speak. You're looking at <laughs> you know you're looking at a player who's uh, was a very good first baseman for a long time. Uh, but that's about it. You know, you, you start stacking him up with players in history, and it's not like you're going to put him in the Hall of Fame based on what he's done. And at the same time, it's like he's Prince Fielder. He is something that's bigger than just a regular old all-star first baseman. He's someone that kind of sticks in your memory. And so I was trying to, to parse why, and part of it is, you know, he definitely uh, has that unique shape. He, he's definitely not the uh, traditional athlete that, that we're used to, and that, that's sort of interesting. But it's also just that pure, violent swing that he has, and he just looks like a home run. Like, you look at the dude and you say, this guy can hit home runs, and then he swings, and he's got that recoil where he pauses, and it's not necessarily staring at it to show the pitcher up. It's just what has to happen as he uncoils that violent swing, and it made me realize, like, that's one of the reasons why he's going to stick in in your memory. He's just so much fun to watch, and he always has been. Yeah, and that's, I mean, the they're there's the the violent sort of snapping action or in his case like it looked like he was just going to spin himself around and dig himself into the ground um but as opposed to somebody like ryan howard who had that sort of ken griffey long graceful swing like i don't know i guess there's like there's a a beauty to to either one but like is you know which one i don't know do you have a, a preference of one or the other yeah, I, I guess if I had to, I'd, I'd like my home run hitters to just be excessively violent. You know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just, I grew up in a Michael Bay world. I want the explosions. Um, I, just, I just love seeing someone just, uh, as, as, as Mike Kruko, the Giants broadcaster, puts it, uh, put both cheeks into it. And so when you have uh, Prince Fielder put both cheeks into it, it just looks like a home run should look. It's just there's something just aesthetically pleasant about him just launching one in the upper deck with every fiber of his being. So I'll I'll take the excessive violence. And and one other thing that I think comes up when you talk about Prince Fielder or other guys from his era who um, who are sort of winding down their careers right now is that is the National League sort of to the second half of the 2000s had a had a great crop of 
of first baseman, whether, you know, a couple guys who actually won MVPs, a couple guys who, uh, who were in the running, you know, between Fielder, Howard, Joey Votto, Derek Lee, and they all just got eaten by Albert Pujols. And is like, what is, what's the influence of, of Albert Pujols just standing so far head and shoulders above, you know, these guys who, who range from, um, from shining brightly for a couple years to, to a couple hall of very good players to Joey Votto, like, you know, Pujols just his legacy just dominates uh, all those guys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I, I wonder if there's uh, younger folk who are just getting into the game the last two years if if they really realize how awesome Albert Pujols was. Uh, you know, I think it's a similar situation to uh, being a shortstop in the '80s, where it was just Cal Ripken. You know, you were you were Cal Ripken. That was your guy. Uh, and and if you're Alan Trammell. Oops, you know, sorry that you had to be merely great. Um, you're just going to get overshadowed completely by Cal Ripken, or you're even better, uh, Ricky Henderson and Tim Raines. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, any other any other decade, Tim Raines is just you know he's a golden leadoff god, but he just happened to be in his prime at the exact same time as the real golden leadoff god, and so that's why it's taken him 15 years to to get in the hall, which he hopefully does. Um, but yeah, it's. It, there's just you're going to get those sort of gluts where all of a sudden it's just one guy is going to stand out head and shoulders above, and everyone else has to sort of fight for scraps. And what do you think about? And this sort this might be a good bridge to to a Rod too. Um, it, there's there's something hanging over Fielder with um, you know he's still got ninety odd million dollars left on his contract, and like there's the unfortunate Ed Werder tweet about how Dallas can't afford. Uh, police or firefighters or something and Prince Fielder's going to make nine, you know, not to single him out, but I'm sure this is a, a bad take that's reverberated throughout the nation. But, you know, how do you, I, I guess something that, that I struggle with is not like dealing that with my uh, squaring that myself, but like explaining that to other people who, who hold contracts for guys like A-Rod or, or Fielder against them, or even, you know, to bring him up inexplicably for the fifth time in this podcast, Ryan Howard. Um, you know, do you have, I guess, any insight on, on, you know, a good way to make that argument? Uh, no, you, I just think it's funny that people are far more comfortable with billionaires holding on to all the money rather than millionaires getting some of the money. Um, I don't know. It's like there's this disconnect where it's just we're just really comfortable with with you know these, these uh, the old guys with billions of dollars just hoarding it all. I mean that's just how things are. But once you get those athletes who are playing a game that I played in high school, making that money and not doing everything that they possibly can, why you know that's somehow offensive. Um, I, I generally don't hold it against them. I mean it's it's tricky when you can see your team not making a move because of that contract. You know, when the mm-hmm. Giants signed Barry Zito, it was tough as a Giants fan because you would look every offseason and go, well, if we didn't have that Barry Zito contract, you know, and so that is frustrating. At the same time, it's negotiated in good faith. Uh, both sides took a risk. Both sides were expecting some sort of reward. Uh, I just, I, you know, especially with Ryan Howard. Ryan Howard gave so much to, to Philadelphia. Uh, he, he's taken some of it back right now, but of course, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he, he he came along and he he thrilled the fans. He had 50 homer seasons. Uh, he he was a part of the title winning team that that kind of this core, this infield core that stuck around for the better part of a decade. Um, that's worth like 
$500 million in my book if I'm a Phillies fan. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, so I, I am a Phillies fan. I feel like I got my money's worth and then some from, from Ryan Exactly, Howard. exactly. So, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't imagine really just honing in on that Prince Fielder contract and saying, well, that's what I'm thinking about. I mean, it's just, he, he did so much more on the field. So I, the money's incidental, not incidental, but it's, it's not the first five things I think about when I think of Fielder. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I I am a little sympathetic because you know that is a lot of money. You know, even for my my default is just if ownership needs to spend more money, then ownership can almost always afford to to spend more money. And Dallas is a big market, but still, you know, ninety ninety six million dollars less what the the Tigers uh, passed on them is still. I mean, that's that's a huge gap in your uh, uh, in your accounting book. Um, but let's let's move on to. Uh, to Alex Rodriguez, who um, said he wanted to play his last game, and God willing, Joe Girardi will actually let him play at some at some point before the Yankees uh, uh, release him. Um, so I, I guess I'll start um, again with with something that you wrote, which was sort of exploring him as a free agent. That uh, that ten year, two hundred fifty two million dollar deal he signed to move him from Seattle to Texas. Uh, and this is something that I, I think you know I, I think about a lot is just he might be the most valuable unattached asset at that point in his career. He was going into his age twenty six season, I think, uh, as an MVP caliber player uh, with very few weaknesses in his game and playing an up the middle position. Like I don't know if it's if it's possible to be a more valuable free agent than that. Um, so you know I thought we were going to see that. Uh, again with Mike Trout uh, before he signed that extension but you know what would it take to you know for or I guess we know what it would take but what would having somebody like that on the free agent market nowadays do to baseball no oh, it would melt the offseason I mean I, I can't imagine it did back then but you know to, right now when you've got the, the social media presence and it, it definitely feels like the, the hot stove league is more of an official presence you know baseball's promoting it more it's something it's not just for the nerds anymore um it, you know it would, it would melt twitter it would melt uh just the whole off season and yeah i mean uh, rodriguez was actually just get, getting off his age 24 season so he's 25 going to be 25 that next season he, he's already one of the top shortstops of all time i mean by by war he, he had more war than uh chris spire uh Edgar Renteria in his career. I mean, like he had already built a career that was like transcendent, and he was only 24. And it like it, it just blows me away. It just completely flummoxes me that that Seattle would a let him get away. Um, you know, I understood the, the constraints they had, um, but b that it went to uh, that he went to a division rival that c didn't really appreciate him. After you know the, what three years they said ah we can't win with this guy we gotta we gotta cut our losses and send some money back in the deal uh it's 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 a funny funny situation and i i really the more i look at it the more i can't believe it happened and where do you, i guess you know the the big question right now is what is I, don't know, I hate talking about legacy, but like that's you know this is important. This is a guy I think is is one of the best half dozen baseball players ever. You know how do you how are you going? To, you know if someone asks you to explain Alex Rodriguez, how would you do it? You know a, a transcendent player who also happened to be a transcendent goofball 
um, one of the most oblivious players in baseball <laughs> history, which is almost worse than being like supervillain evil. Like he just he wanted to be liked so much, and he was just such an oddball that it was tough. Um, you know, he he took the money, and I don't blame him for that one bit. He got he got uh, every bit that he deserved as far as uh, uh, as a free agent, and then he gave it back on the field. You know, it was a pretty good deal for a free agent, even at that inflated price. But I would say transcendent player who just did all the right things to get overlooked just enough. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the performance-enhancing drugs, that's uh, that's why he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame, at least not not for a while. So uh, that that's going to cast quite a pall over you know, what he did, too. Yeah, and that, I, I mean, that's really the thing for me. What you said was he wanted to be liked and, like, could never really embrace the, the supervillain stuff. And, you know, that's something that I think might have actually helped Barry Bonds in the in the long term. Like he didn't mind playing the heel, whether the you know, the face was was Griffey or McGuire and Sosa or or whoever. Like he, you know, sort of for better or worse, embraced that that villain role in a way that I think might have actually helped A-Rod if he hadn't you know th- I mean this is the the most tragic thing because he he I don't know, it's not tragic is too strong a word. But like he Alex Rodriguez is a superstar reminds me so much of myself in high school that like he wants so badly to be liked and he can never quite figure out how to do it and get it you know just to it it, it looks so easy when when other people are, are are doing it but like he could never like get that uh you know approval of of the the fans or the media or whoever no matter how hard he tried and you know I, I guess that might be warping my my judgment a little bit but were you like swallowing your car keys in front of kids at lunch? No, to get attention? No, I was definitely not swallowing my car <laughs> keys. Um, I was like, I was just not particularly cool, and I just, you know, I thought being nice to people was, yeah, you know, was how you do that. And when I tried to, you know, act like other cool kids, it just never, it never landed. So, like, you know, I, it was. I, I didn't get to the point where Cameron Diaz was fe- feeding me popcorn. I guess that would have been cooler back when I was in high school than when it actually <laughs> happened to Alex Rodriguez. But yeah, it's. I'm pretty sure that story of, of not being cool in high school is not going to resonate around baseball or baseball Twitter. Um, please no. Of us, as you know, we're all captains of the football team and such. Um, I was president of my school's drama club, which is basically like captain of the football team where I'm from. Anyways. Um, so I think, oh, I can I, think, I can yeah, beat that. I I I got two varsity letters when I was in high school and won championships in both of them. Uh, and it was marching band and academic challenge, nice, which were nice, which were nice. sp- technically sports at my high school. So this is the you know yeah. I guess that that says a lot about uh um I guess what I perceive Alex Rodriguez's personal insecurity to be. You know maybe you know maybe he's in a better place now after. After all, this is behind him, right? I mean, you know, it's it's pretty clear that he just he really wanted to be liked, and I I do think one of the not sad, like you're saying, it's not tragic, but if he had stayed in Seattle, I could see people overlooking him being a weirdo. Like if he were in Seattle for all 22 seasons, um, kept re-upping with him, taking a lot of money, but maybe a little less money. I think he would have been a beloved institution, even with the performance-enhancing drugs. You know, even if that came out later, I think uh, Seattle would have kind of rallied around him, like Giants fans with Bonds or Brewers fans with with Ryan Braun. I I think he would have survived that and made it out a little bit better. I think 
he would have, you know, because Cal Ripken's kind of an oddball. You know, he's, mm-hmm. a, he's a surly fella. He's not necessarily uh, Mr. Warm and Jovial. And people were more than willing to overlook that just because he had that legacy. You know, he had the streak. He had uh, the one-team career. And uh, people don't talk about Cal Ripken's personality. They talk about him being Cal Ripken. And I think if Rodriguez did that with the Mariners, maybe that would have been what, what he was kind of searching for internally all along. It, it's all speculation. But I could make an argument that him being with the Mariners would have been a lot quieter in a way that was uh, much more productive for Alex Rodriguez personally. Yeah, and, but even at the same time, that's sort of a, like if that's how you get around it, that's sort of a shitty thing to expect from an athlete in the age of free agency. Like, you know, Alex Rodriguez oh, didn't sure. go to didn't go to Seattle because he wanted to. Um, for sure. Yeah, but, yeah he was, he was a, an indentured servant for six years, you know, making peanuts to be one of the greatest players of all time. So, yeah, he didn't, he didn't owe them that. I'm not saying that. But sure, um, sure. if he had seen that, the public perception would have been like, oh, there's Alex Rodriguez, lifelong Mariner and institution. And, and that might have been what he ended up really wanting. Or, I don't know. All right. Let's, let's hit the Giants real quick before uh, we send you on your way. Um, you wrote about uh, the Giants' offense at, at McCovey Chronicles, and I guess my question is, how are they not pulling away from the Dodgers who just – the Dodgers cannot get out of their own way, and the Giants are, are still uh, only only one game up in the division. It seems like they've been exactly one game up in the division for about six weeks now. So, you know, <laughs> what gives? It was when I wrote about their, they had an eight and a half game lead at one point, and I wrote about it and said, you know, I put it in historical context, like this is one of the bigger leads in the NL West ever, period. You know, it doesn't matter if it's May, if it's June, if it's August, um, generally the leads in the division don't get this big. And I said that, you know, there's been uh, three times when this has happened, 1971, uh, 2000, or 1971, 1993, and 2014. And in 1971 and 1993, the Giants completely collapsed, just ran themselves out of the postseason. They didn't even make the postseason after having such a huge lead. In 2014, they completely collapsed and gave the division away to the Dodgers. It ended up okay because they snuck Mm -hmm. in the wild card and did their, you know, their their even-year nonsense anyway. But the last three times they had a lead that big, they just frittered it away. And so it was kind of like waiting for the other shoe to drop, and then they threw the other shoe at you. Like, it's just, they, they completely collapsed. They stopped hitting. Um, they can't buy a hit with runners in scoring position in the second half. Uh, everything that was good about the first half, it kind of went on a downward trajectory. Uh, when it comes to Johnny Cueto not being quite as reliable, Jeff Smarge has been awful. Um, they, Madison Bumgarner's been fine, but they cannot win one of his starts. So the Dodgers have been injured They've been sort of not getting out of their own way, like you say, but the Giants have been just a, just a mess. And I don't think they're this bad, just like I don't think they were that good in the first half. It's just you're not supposed to see regression to the mean happen like so clearly. You're not it's not supposed to be that simple and easily to identify like, aha, you know, they're not that good, but they're not that bad. So it's all going to even out like it's just it's a weird stretch for them. And, you know, I, I wrote about the Giants that a few weeks ago when they were um, just sort of starting that decline. And I sort of wrote, I wrote about it like, you know, it's 2016. It's an even year. They got this in the bag and, you know, they've actually got a a pretty decent team, or at least they, they did back then, you know, how much like this has reached a point for me where it was a joke. 
until about mid World Series 2014, and now like I I take it like about fifteen percent serious that there's like some sort of metaphysical because like you know those, those the the first two Giants teams were yeah they weren't the I mean the the team that wins a World Series is very rarely the the best team in baseball anyway. But like you know, the Giants sort of backed into the playoffs a couple times. Then all of a sudden, it just it just happens. And so I've just you know I predicted that the Giants would win the World Series um, before the season just because this was the you know I figured why not? So I guess like is is there any part of you that sort of takes takes this seriously now? This even year thing? Not really. But what I do believe in is that if they were to win this year that I would just be so miserable for the rest of baseball. It would be just the ultimate in trolling to win a fourth even year championship. And I believe that the universe likes a good joke like that. Um, I don't I don't think there's anything special about it every other year. I don't think there's uh, uh, anything in the players' minds. Uh, I think it's been mostly coincidence, but I do believe in the possibility that the universe likes to troll us all. And so I, I do hold out hope. I think... Uh, I think there's a possibility. I mean, like 2014, they literally brought back one of their ex-prospects, shoved him in left field, even though he wasn't a good hitter and had never really played left field before, mm-hmm. and he won the pennant for them. And so once you see that, it's like, you know, just, just whatever. Like, just everything and anything can happen. I'll, I'll believe it. I'll just wait until the postseason, and I'm not going to stress too much about the regular season because this is all, all very, very absurdly written fan fiction by now. It, well, if the the universe is is trolling you, I guess the only thing to do is troll back. Uh, you can read uh, Grant Brisby at McCovey Chronicles and SB Nation. Follow him on Twitter at McCovey Cron. Grant, it's been a pleasure having you on. Absolutely, thank you so much for having me on. Buying tickets online for sports and concerts has been a confusing process for a long time. It's always been hard to find the best deal for that game or show you want to go to, and none of those older ticket sites want to change that. But SeatGeek is different. They've come along and created an amazing app and website that makes it easier than ever for fans to buy and sell tickets. So just to give an example, I live in Houston, Texas, home of five uh, pro sports teams. I found great tickets for uh, the Astros-Cardinals game next week, or if you are more into college football this is a college football boom town uh you can get great seats for uh the houston cougars and uh, the university of oklahoma at nrg stadium um, that's going to be a great game and you know it's great for concerts too i was looking around and saw that explosions in the sky was playing at white white oak music hall and thought you know was immediately overcome with the idea that i would want to sob noiselessly into my hands while thinking about friday night lights and went to click the checkout page no hidden fees it was just exactly Exactly the same price that it said on the website, and that's just such a refreshing change from from other ticket sites. So with SeatGeek, you'll never need to waste time checking prices on other sites. SeatGeek does that for you by pulling all the tickets available on other sites into one place so you save time and never miss a deal. And SeatGeek wants to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced deals and be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. Best of all, Bringer MLB Show listeners get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. To get that rebate, you download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click add a promo code and enter promo code RINGERMLB. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code RINGERMLB today.
And we're back with uh, Dane Perry, he's a writer for CBS Sports, and we're going to talk a little more A Rod uh, and Prince Fielder, and uh, uh, you know, sort of look at uh, the the legacies of of a couple of these great players who are retiring. So, Dane, how you doing? I'm well, man. I'm well, man. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. So, we lost Alex Rodriguez this week. We lost Prince Fielder. That well, they're not dead or anything. Whatever. Uh, the 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 press conference at uh, at Globe Life Park might have um, might have felt like uh, the other day, but you yeah, know, we lost those guys and, and Mark Teixeira and Ichiro's winding down. You know, Matt Holiday just got hurt. He's sort of on the back end. Ryan Zimmerman's sort of on the back end. Um, how are you doing with sort of accepting your own mortality? Watching these guys sort of fall off one by one. Well, I'm. Uh... A couple of years ago, I think I reached the point where there were no longer any Major League Baseball players who were older than I was. So I think G- Jason Chiami might have been the, the last guy. I'm older than Cologne, just to disclose that. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, this, you know, baseball uh, mortality is something I have uh, coped with and dealt with. But, yeah, this was, uh, you know, I mean, it's going to be very strange. I mean, particularly with A-Rod. I mean, obviously, you know, his public perception and that kind of thing is a mixed bag, and he's a complicated personality and that sort of thing. But he's just been, I mean, a steady presence for more than two decades in the game. I mean, we've been talking about him since the day he arrived, since the day he got drafted. And this is just, uh, it's going to be weird without him, regardless of how you feel about him. Yeah. I mean, he's his, uh, his rookie year was the first year that I uh, sort of started following baseball. Like, I remember wanting... Uh, you know, wanting to wear number three in Little League because Alex Rodriguez wore yeah. it. Like, I, I've, I've really never known baseball without him. And it's just, yeah, I, mean, I mean, yeah, he was, uh, I mean, you know, I, such a phenomenon, even, uh, you know, coming up as, uh, I mean, back in those days, you know, we weren't as clued in to, you know, hey, this guy's going to be the, you know, one of the top picks in the draft two years from now, that sort of thing. We, we didn't really have the, the radar didn't stretch that far back in those days, you know what I mean? But A-Rod was really, uh, you know, the hype preceded him in a way that, you know, at least to my memory, I don't recall being about another player. It was just, you know, he was sort of christened from the uh, the moment he, uh, uh, you know, started appearing on draft radar and that sort of thing and struggled in that first year, but then that, you know, the following year was just, he was just a force of nature and just, you know, you knew he was going to be amazing from that point on. What, is there someone like off on the horizon that, you know, is sort of coming down to the end and and when he finally calls it quits, you know, that's just going to be a real gut punch. Like that's going to be an end of the you know, end of an era the way it is with, with Alex Rodriguez. Uh, that's, uh, Huh, that's one of those questions you should have emailed me before. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. Next time. <laughs> no, you know, I, let me, you know, Jeter just went, and then now we have A-Rod. I'm trying to think someone else who approaches that stature who's on the downside like that. Cabrera, maybe, Miguel Cabrera, because, I mean, he's sort of been, uh, you know, he's just been performing at a very high level from the moment he hit the majors, you know what I mean? And yeah. uh, he's, and he's obviously going to have a lot of benchmarks uh, very much within his reach. And, you know, still obviously this year playing at a high level. And, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I think I predicted his decline phase probably three or four years ago. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. just looking like a ridiculous call at this point. And maybe once his skills at the plate start eroding, it's going to be one of those psychological adjustments too. And he's he's another guy. And I wonder if there's something to this 
where part of what made him great is not only that he was great so suddenly, but he was great at such a young age. Like it's a you know twenty twenty year old third baseman left fielder on that Marlins team that won the World yeah. Series, and with guys like A Rod and, and Cabrera and Mike Trout, who like Mike Trout in my head, like I know he just turned twenty five, but he's in, in my mind he's still like twenty one or twenty two. Like it takes good and young, it takes a while for that young half of it to to wear off. And I wonder if that's part of the, the shock with, uh, with Cabrera. Like, you know, he's, he's like 20 or 33 now. Like I can't conceive of a, a universe in, in which he's 33 years old. Yeah. I, yeah. Just, you know, a guy that's been there for that long and then sort of the, uh, it, you know, I, this applies to A-Rod as well, but it's sort of like the Frank Robinson effect where you have this just excellence on both sides of a major trade. You know, this isn't a trade mm-hmm. of a guy who's, you know, maybe on his last gas, talking about compared to Detroit, but just you know, two you know on either side of that trade, just ongoing excellence, and uh, you know, the, you know, as I mentioned, that kind of applies to A Rod as well, going to the Yankees. But I think probably his best years were behind him at that point, even though he was a tremendous player from that point forward. But yeah, I mean, it's just you know, Cabrera is just such a steady presence, and just you know, can bank on him year after year to produce at a high level, and eventually that's going to change, and that's going to be uh, an adjustment. So I want to talk to you now about a mistake you made uh, earlier this week, and that mistake is to put a ranked list out on the internet for public oh, consumption. Uh, you, oh, you know, to, yeah. to celebrate the end of Alex Rodriguez's <laughs> career, you ranked uh, the 17 best players in baseball history, and I want to, you know, sort of take you out behind the woodshed about that a little bit. Yeah, let so, me let me uh, let me uh, let me amend this a bit. I was told to by an editor. Okay. <laughs> uh, out and Ser- Sergio Gonzalez made me do this. Uh, this is not. I would never volunteer to undertake an exercise such as this. But if it's put to me on pain of termination, then I will. You know, I'll do what I have to do. But yeah, you these just, lists are just always terrible. Orders, yeah. Always terrible, and mine is no exception. It's terrible. I I was shocked actually. Like, I mean, I'm I'm glad to hear that that you were uh, doing this under duress because this just seems. So flippant, you know, out of character for you. But so one thing you did, like you, your list would look very, very different than if I were foolish enough to put out a similar list for for public consumption, Um, in part because you addressed, I think, the maybe the most interesting part of um, of putting together one of these lists that ranges decades, which is how you deal with the timeline adjustment, like how you deal with differences in era not only pitcher friendly versus hitter friendly but you know you said this uh, explicitly you know Babe Ruth didn't play against African Americans let alone foreign competition right. you know how do you deal with the higher standards for athleticism now and so yeah. you know you sort of went more by the the actual historical record than by um I guess who would you know if you put 1927 Babe Ruth on a field with 2002 Barry Bonds, who would put up better numbers, something like that. So, you know, I'm right, curious yeah. why you decided to approach it like that. Honestly, it was a, uh, it was uh, just to make the list. I thought more interesting because if it's if you proceed from the premise that well, obviously modern players are better. Uh, here's mm-hmm. a list of modern players. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. I I, I just say I just think. A list such as this should in some way capture the sprawl of baseball history, and that sort of informed that stance. I perfectly understand the viewpoint, and 
you know, maybe uh, if my editor doesn't make me do a piece, I might even share it to an extent. But I think for purposes of this exercise, you want to try to capture baseball history, uh, at least in broad terms. And you know what? I mean, I think there's, you know, I mean, who's to say uh, if Babe Ruth these days, you know, with the uh, the human growth curve acts at a couple inches of height just based on the decades that have passed and, and uh, you know, the modern training methods that would be and, what we, you know, what we know about swing mechanics and, and you know, core mm-hmm. strength and nutrition and all that kind of stuff and throwing a guaranteed contract and some Instagram body shaming and, you know, maybe he's, uh, maybe he uh, is, you know, just a colossus of fitness these days and his numbers do hold up. I mean, I, you know, who can say? Obviously, that's a hypothetical that we can't even begin to broach, but, you know, I, I think there's, we just assume that these players from the past would not translate, but let's also think about them availing themselves of everything we know and can do nowadays in terms of making athletes, you know, at the top of their game. Yeah, and I, I mean, the it being interesting and for public consumption is, is an important thing, too, because, you know, I sort of, I went through a similar me- mental exercise when I was writing about A-Rod, and I was like, well, who are the, you know, who do I think are the best position players ever and I sort of went one bonds two a rod three trout and then I sort of lost interest and you know because mm. how do you you know how far back do you you know like right. is it how far back do you say that you know people from this era could could compete against modern competition so um right yeah, yeah. I mean that's 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 it's a really fascinating unknowable uh just you know what do these players do if we drop them in today's game? And obviously we have all these context-adjusted metrics and that sort of thing, and we can mm-hmm. you know, make some back-of-the-cocktail napkin adjustments for the, the player pool you know, being artificially limited in those days. But it's still an unknowable, and it's still kind of fascinating to think about. And I, part of me wishes uh, there were some sort of uh, sorcery that could allow us to find out for sure, but there's not. Yeah. I bet you Babe Ruth had more fun than I bet you Babe Ruth had more fun than anybody who had to like watch what he ate or drank uh, on this list. Yeah, 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 Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like my kid asked me uh, like, who would you rather be, and like naming all these players, and one he said like Babe Ruth or Joe DiMaggio, and I was like, you know what, Babe Ruth really enjoyed himself a lot more than Joe DiMaggio (laughs) did, I think. So I'll be Babe Ruth. So, you know, uh, when we're you know, talking burn, about... Burn up rather than fade away. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about these big historical arguments, I I wonder how much of the hostility to modern players is from, you know, sort of traditionally minded, uh, very historically grounded. I, I think it's a very polite, euphemistic way to uh, to get across this meaning. You know, uh, writers who, who value the past a lot. And they seem to... Yeah they seem to take a an approach to younger players that almost is like, you know, they're okay. And each, this is the really interesting thing each said about, about the way Pete Rose treated him when he was um, getting closer to 4,200 career professional hits, but like people like you as long as you're non-threatening. And then, you know, they turned on, they turned on bonds, they turned on a rod and, you know, certainly both of them uh, did things that were, um, worthy of scorn but i you know i i find myself really in like being very pro a rod and i can't tell if that's because i actually i mean obviously he's a great player i think he's one of the three best baseball players ever but how much of it is i find myself defending i guess behavior that i don't know if i really like or if i just 
don't like the people who argue against it. And I was, you know, just sort of wondering if you had similar thoughts. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, sort of a pat answer to this is that if you, if you breed people to compete at the highest level of something, they're going to be competitive people and they're going to do things that give them an edge. Uh, and I think that's probably especially relevant, at least in modern times, we're talking about the era of sports specialization and, you know, christening kids from this age to be great one day. And, I mean, this is, you know, A-Rod is a particular example of this. He has been raised to be the greatest baseball player on earth. And when you, you know, bring up a kid in that environment, and I'm not judging that sort of thing. I mean, if you have a kid who's uniquely skilled at something, I think he should certainly apply himself to that. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously he's going to uh, do what he has to do to achieve what everyone expected of him from a young age, you know. And, uh, you know, Bob Gibson and others have said this. and said if they, you know, if they knew about these things, they would have taken them. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I don't, there's no purity to the past, as we all know. I mean, the amphetamine era stretched way back uh, to cover some, you know, greats that are exalted these days. And, you know, Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, that sort of thing. I, just I, I don't see this sort of uh, this sort of moral dividing line between old players and new players, and you know new players are going to uh, use what's available to them just like the old players did. And I just don't see uh, I don't see the moral distinction there, and I think it's kind of facile to uh, to, to point you know to hit your wagon to that. And I think you know a lot of the media and a lot of fans do that. I, I just yeah. I don't get it. Yeah. And since you brought up morality, we're gonna. I'm, I'll ask you another question. Um, you know, I wonder how much of the the vitriol that gets tossed at at certain players is because of of fans or, or writers or, or media people who are attached to or you know just in close proximity to to one uh, to one organization. Um, whether they sort of start to identify with that to the point where it's tough to separate. Like, you know, is it is it my team won or uh, my team or I think my team is better or my I think my team is morally superior? And I think those are leaps that that people make a lot of the time. You know, we're seeing this with the Olympics. We're getting a lot of sort of yeah. a neo-Cold War talk about drugs and, and swimming and stuff. And, like you know, this you know, 19 year old American girl, Lily King is, is, you know, yeah. she's clean and she won and she beat the dirty Russian. And like, I don't know, that just strikes me as entirely unhealthy, but I don't know how to, you know, we ask people, you know, you and I have, uh, have jobs that, you know, well, at least I enjoy my job. I don't know how much you enjoy yours being forced to write uh, controversial lists, but, um, you know, <laughs> this industry that, that we work in is the result of, of people having that borderline unhealthy fixation. You know, I just wonder if we're, we're all better, better off for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's sports at the team level, uh, you know, from an observer standpoint is tribalism. You know what I mean? And I'm not, you know, I'm not judging. I mean, I, uh, I indulge in that myself, you know, in rooting interest and that sort of thing. I think, I, you know, I, I'm uh, I, I live in Chicago and I grew up a Cardinals fan, so I'm particularly attuned to the Cubs Cardinals rivalry right now. And there is just mm-hmm. on both sides, there is just right now there is just absolutely no ability to uh, to uh, uh, relate beyond the uniforms. Like, oh, they, they did this, they're they're awful. It's and we did this, but here's how it's different, you know, and that that sort of thing. And it's just and this translates across all. I mean, you know, I grew up in Mississippi and. SEC football is just the absolute Jonestown of sports, you know, and there's just, 
it's cultish oh, yeah. and as as an SEC football just, fan. Right. As an SEC football fan, I, I want to make it clear that I am not judging. I am guilty of everything that, uh, you know, that I've, oh, yeah, I've yeah, said. Yeah, was no, I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, and that, you know, that animates a lot that we do as, as sports writers, and we have to tap into that. And probably even when I, you know, I, I wish I could have washed my hands of it, uh, like with this list. Uh, you know, I do it in other ways, too, I'm sure. I tap into that because, hey, it means clicks, and it keeps me employed, and keeps me from having to have a real career and that sort of thing, you know? So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's at once uh, off-putting and very convenient for us, you know what I mean? It's just, it's never going to go away. I mean, you're, you're going to have a subset of fans who can be very rational and objective about their team and that sort of thing, but I think the comfortable majority uh, uh, are not. And, you know, I, yeah. I, I, it would probably be a less interesting landscape if everyone were able to be very rational and, and you know, approach things from a sensible remove, I guess. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's the Babe Ruth thing. Yeah. You know, healthy is less fun. Yeah. So, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bring on the bring on the malaise. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, all right. Let's let's uh, step back from the metaphysical and the historical and end with something that's very much grounded in the here and now. You know, we've got uh, about about eight weeks left in the season, give or take. What are is there a storyline, a player, a team that you've got your eye on that like this is going to be the most interesting to cover or follow between now and the start of the playoffs? Yeah, I, I keep. Uh... You'd think I would believe in the Orioles and their Buckshire Walter by now, but I just, I, I, I still, I look at that roster and I think, how are they doing this? And, you know, I know how brilliant he is at running a bullpen and know how much power they have in the lineup and that sort of thing, but I, I still have a hard time believing that they're right in the race in the at least this season. And I just, I want to see if they can keep it up. You know, I mean, it's, it's kind of wonderful that they have made a fool of me for so long. And I just want to see if they can keep it going because part of me does not believe it. So. Uh, they have a lot of compelling players on that team, and mm-hmm. you know, as I mentioned, I love the way Showalter runs a bullpen. I love to see him. I love to see his wheels turning in the middle and late innings. And uh, that's a team that you know they just continue to defy what I think they're going to do. And I want to see if they keep doing it over the last two months. Yeah, I, I often do this podcast with Mallory Rubin, who is the the biggest Orioles fan I know, and so it's good to uh-huh. good to good to hear somebody uh, somebody else express Orioles skepticism on this podcast without without getting yelled at. <laughs> so this is a this is a safe space. All right, good, well, good. Uh, I like this. Yeah. All right, well, uh, I think this is a, a good time to uh, to wrap this stuff or wrap this podcast up. Dane, thanks so much for for coming on. And uh, we can. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. All right. You can read Dane Perry at CBSSports.com and uh, follow him on Twitter at Dane Perry. And uh, that'll do it for this podcast. So uh, thanks so much for listening. And uh, we'll check in again next week.